I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm joined on the line by David Friend, who's the co-founder and CEO of Wasabi Technologies. David, welcome to Launchpad. Hi, nice to be here. Uh, You're calling us from Boston, is that right? I am. Yeah, it's my hometown, so it's always nice to connect uh, to people from from Boston. Uh, David, give us the elevator pitch for Wasabi Technologies. So Wasabi is uh, exactly the same as Amazon S3 cloud storage, except it's one-fifth the price and six times as fast. All right. Well, that's a good that's a good elevator pitch. And actually, while I'm at it, let me point our listeners to your website. You've got a fantastic name, and I want to hopefully have some time to circle back on that in a in a minute. But the the URL is simply wasabi.com. David, if I were to pick one of the uh, most quixotic endeavors ever, it would be to take on Amazon on price. So, what possessed you to take on that goal? Well, we're cloud storage experts. You know, uh, the founding team at Wasabi also founded Carbonite, which is a, a large backup company on the NASDAQ. And, uh, you know, we came up with the idea for this next generation storage technology about three years ago. Um, I recruited a new CEO to run Carbonite. Carbonite is a pretty good sized company today. I think they have 1,200 or 1,300 employees. Mm-hmm. And uh, we saw this opportunity to. Uh, have about a two-year head start on anybody else uh, in the storage area. And uh, so I I believe we can sell storage for less than Amazon costs them to to do storage. Mm -hmm. So sooner or later, people will catch up. But I have uh, two or three years now to build a brand as the company that basically commoditized cloud storage. Uh, We think cloud storage should be just like electricity or bandwidth. It should just be there, and it should be one size fits all. You don't need all these silly different tiers like uh, near line, cold line, glacier, and all these kinds of things. When you have, uh, you know, you don't have three different kinds of electricity in the wall, you know, really good electricity that's expensive and medium, and then crummy electricity that's cheap. So, you know, I, cloud storage will be the same because uh, that's the way the technology is heading. All right. Well, I want to circle back on that vision, which I think is really interesting, and also learn a little bit more about what enables this head start. But to start, maybe just give us the basics for our listeners who are not familiar with Amazon cloud services. What is cloud storage and what who basically buys it and what do they use it for? Mm-hmm. Well, cloud storage is just like a huge disk drive in the sky. You can store anything there. Um, Amazon's product and ours as well, because we're identical, is uh, is based on a, a notion called object storage, which is essentially similar to folders and files. You, in object storage world, you have objects, you have uh, buckets and objects. A bucket being similar to a folder on a on a PC, but you can put virtually anything up there. And so, you know, everything from I mean, we have today. In Wasabi, even though we've only been on the market about eight weeks, uh, we have over 500 companies that are now sending us stuff. And it's everything from weather satellite data to feature-length films to uh, photos and and, uh, personal stuff to uh, 
transaction data from large corporations, uh, Internet of Things data from uh, uh, companies that have transportation vehicles and things of this sort. So it's really anything that you need to store for you know, a reasonably long period of time, three months up to 30 years. And uh, you want to put it somewhere it's safe, where it's not on your premises, and where somebody who really understands data management can take care of it. Okay, so for those listeners who, for instance, have a Google Drive account, this would be the consumer manual version of cloud storage, meaning I can I have virtual storage that behaves as if it were part of my hard drive, but it's stored in some safe and probably distributed way out there in the so-called cloud, uh, and that gives me enhanced security. Is yeah, that... Under, did I, yeah. Un, yeah, underneath many applications, there is the storage part. So, mm -hmm. for example, I don't know if most of your listeners are aware of this, but if they use Dropbox, uh, Dropbox uh, started by storing all their data in Amazon S3, their, their cloud storage product. Uh, iCloud from Apple uh, stored all their data in Amazon S3. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get you know companies like Pinterest and so forth. And underneath all of these applications, whatever they do, it could be a backup application, could be a file sharing application, so forth. Anything that requires storage needs something like, uh, like Wasabi. Okay. Now, let me ask one more weedy technical question. Um, the storage does, at some point, have to exist physically. That is, there has to be a device somewhere that is that is that is encapsulating the ones and the zeros that are in the data um and 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 that physical location matters so does cloud storage also imply that it's geographically distributed in a way that access times can be quite quite rapid or is that service typically provided by yet another provider um w well we have located our first data center in in uh, ashburn virginia mm -hmm where we have access to one of the Amazon Direct Connect uh, pipes because we assume people may still run their applications in Amazon's cloud, but store their data with us. Um, in terms of speed, um, we had uh, a big government laboratory test Wasabi from San Diego going mm -hmm. to our Virginia data center, and it was still three times faster than Amazon's local storage. Um, we will be putting a second data center out on the West Coast uh, very soon, and the purpose of that will be to give even faster response time for people who are geographically closer, but also uh, a lot of customers want to have their data replicated across two different regions, either for just for availability purposes or for compliance purposes. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I promised only one weedy technical question, and now I'm already uh, uh, defined that pledge. But it, does that mean that the latency or the delay in accessing data is largely driven um, not by the, the time required to move it geographically, but more by the actual access time uh, of the storage itself? Is that is that right? Is that why it, it, it is so fast from the West Coast? Yeah. Yeah, it's a combination of the two. So, you know, latency from Boston to San Diego is generally in the neighborhood of 70 milliseconds. Latency from Boston to rest to uh, Ashburn, Virginia is probably 10 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. um, but 
if you look, uh, Amazon specs say that they don't guarantee they're going to give you your data back until 150 milliseconds. Ah. So, you know, if the, if the retrieval of the data takes 150 milliseconds, whether you add 10 milliseconds or 30 milliseconds to that, doesn't make a huge amount of difference. Um, Wasabi is quite a bit faster. Wasabi uh, guarantees time to first byte of 15 milliseconds, so it's quite a bit faster. So if you're trying to get a lot of data out of Wasabi quickly, um, you know, probably helps to be closer. Hence, we will have multiple data centers. Okay. So I think I think everyone, at least most people, are probably on board with understanding the, the technology. Let me circle back to something you said, which was you saw an opportunity to get a two- to three-year head start. And uh, maybe can you talk at all about what that opportunity is? What What is it about the technology that enables you to perform better than the technology leaders you know, you're competing with Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. I mean, these people have, don't these people have any technology that you have? No, they don't have the same technology we have, or they would be able to do what we do. Okay. Um, um, I'll, I'll, I can't go into a lot of the technical details mm-hmm. because I'm sure Amazon, Google, and Microsoft would love to know how we do it. I see. But, but suffice it to say that... Um, how you write the data, we use disk drives just like those guys do, mm-hmm. but how you write the data to disk makes a lot of difference. So uh, we actually write the, the very low-level software that grabs control of the heads on the disk drives, and we determine where those bits of information are going to get placed physically on those disks. Mm-hmm. Now, almost nobody else would ever do that because you would rely on Windows or Mac, or Linux, or some operating system to do that for you. Um, Outside of the team that we have at Wasabi, I've actually never met another programmer that has ever had to deal with how you place bits physically on disk. Hmm. And uh, because it's a very arcane, very low-level part of the software stack that only the people in the companies that make operating systems would ever want to think about. So when you write a file to disk, uh, if you just say file save on your computer, mm-hmm. it's the operating system that's going to determine how those bits are put on disk. And you can't get the kind of speed and efficiency that we get for storage using any of those operating systems. Mm-hmm. We don't use Linux. We don't use Windows. We don't use any of those things to determine how we write the data to disk. And the secret sauce, obviously, is, is, is in exactly how we do write the yeah. data disk. And, um, but, you know, I'm sure that um, these other guys who are doing um, cloud storage are sitting on top of either a Linux operating system or, in the case of Microsoft, no doubt, in a Windows operating system. Oh, that was going to be my next question. So your belief is that Amazon is actually running their data, their data centers using Linux as opposed to their own proprietary operating system, storage operating system? Yeah. I mean, very, very few people have ever written a file system that gets down to, you know, those very low levels. It's mm-hmm. just the people at, at Red Hat or Microsoft or Apple who are the small teams that are actually involved in that. And to write an operating system that's optimized for a computer, which has a lot of different things going on other than just storage, mm-hmm. 
is, is very different from the criteria that you would have if you said, what I really want to do is optimize this whole thing for long-term storage of data. Yeah. Okay, so I, I get that, and that's super interesting, and I, I definitely learned something from, from that explanation. I, I want to circle back to another thing you said, which uh, took me back a little bit, which is that you said there shouldn't be multiple, there aren't multiple types of electricity. There, this is a commodity and should be a commodity. Um, most people don't don't clamor to enter a business that is being commoditized. So what's your thinking there? Uh, if you do you think this is ultimately a very short term play and 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 if so, what is the profit opportunity for a new entrant that has a two to three year advantage, but ultimately is driving towards something that, as you say, should be a commodity? Well, you know, the, the business of disrupting a market can be done in a number of ways. And, and, you know, sometimes you're finding a new technology that replaces an old technology and involves changing a behavior. So, you know, for example, um, you know, when, you, when cameras became part of, of your mobile phones, the idea of having a separate camera kind of disappeared. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you had a displacement take place. Um, what we're doing is basically saying we can do the same thing the other guy is doing, only much faster and much cheaper. And there are lots of examples of companies that have been very successful doing this. Right in our own backyard here, we have EMC, which is now part of Dell, a multi-billion dollar company, even before it was acquired by Dell. And EMC got started by making IBM-compatible disk drives. Mm -hmm. So back in the day when IBM owned the mainframe market, EMC came along and said, we're going to make a disk drive that's exactly the same as the IBM disk drive, only 30% cheaper. And unplug theirs, plug in ours, and you'll see that it works exactly the same. And they got to be more than a billion dollars in revenue before um, IBM did anything about trying to compete with them. Another example would be, and you probably uh, remember this, um, AT&T once owned the long-distance market. Mm -hmm. And then this little startup called MCI came along and did the what would seem like just as insane as what I'm doing, mm -hmm. came in with generic long-distance for half the price. And it took AT&T 11 years before they threw in the towel and decided to lower their prices to match, AT and, mm -hmm. uh, match MCI. And in the meantime, their market share shrank from 90% to 40%. So there are lots and lots of examples of this throughout American industrial history. Uh, another one would be Nucor, the steel company, took on U.S. Steel. At the time, U.S. Steel was not only the largest steel company in the United States, it was the largest corporation, period, in the United States. And today, U.S. Steel has been delisted from the S&P 500, and Nucor is the largest steel manufacturer in the United States. And all they did was figure out a way to make the same old sheet steel at a, at a slightly lower price. And the world beat a path to their door, and it took, it was the infrastructure that the other guys had, this big honking infrastructure, was too hard to change. Mm -hmm. And so I look at my situation, and, and people say, well, why won't Amazon just drop their prices and kill you guys? So... Amazon S3 is reportedly something like a $5 billion product for Amazon, mm -hmm. with probably very good profit margins. If you were the guy in charge of, of sales for Amazon S3, 
when would be a good time to cut your price by 80% and see $4 billion erased from your top line just because some little company in uh, Boston starts to run annoying advertising? Mm. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very interesting because what you're basically saying is that your strategy is something the incumbents cannot follow without destroying their entire business model. A lot of people say that it's about the technology, but it's not about the technology. Mm-hmm. It's about the it's about the business model. So mm-hmm. you're you're exactly right on that. Obviously, you have to have the technology, but I don't think about it that way because any of these companies, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, have a lot of smart people, and they could do what we do, you know, given a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. But from a business model standpoint, you know, when are they going to do it? And mm-hmm. I think. There's there will be plenty of time for us to get to be um, a big company, uh, hopefully as big as EMC was, um, you know, before before the competition heats up to the point where, um, you know, we're just one of the guys. Yeah. David, I want to take you back to the origin story. You were working in essentially uh, the same industry for a company that you'd founded and led for, for 10 years. Um, or something like that. What? Why did you decide to start a new company as opposed to doing this within the existing enterprise? Well, it's kind of what I do. So Wasabi is the seventh company that I founded since mm-hmm. getting out of college. Um, all I've done is start companies and then sell them my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I cannot resist an opportunity uh, of the magnitude of Wasabi. And... <clears throat> My uh, my genius technical partner, Jeff Flowers, came to me one day when he was still at Carbonite, and he said, I have an idea for a new generation of cloud storage, and if my numbers are right, we would be able to do more or less what Wasabi is now doing. So I said, great. I said, go off and explore it. So he went off for a year and did some experiments, ran some prototypes, and came back to me and said, it works. And uh, I said, okay, I'm in. So I went out, recruited a new CEO for Carbonite, who's luckily done a very good job, terrific guy. And, uh, you know, at that point, uh, Carbonite was a big company. And I'm back doing what I really love, which is all the skeptics and all the people who say you're going to get killed by Amazon, you're going to get killed by this guy and so forth, we're out to prove them wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. And we had the same thing at Carbonite. You know, when we started Carbonite, uh, we had EMC, Iron Mountain, and HP as incumbents in the backup space. And they were telling their customers, oh, there's no way Carbonite can do what they're doing and still make money. They'll be out of business in two years. Well, by five years later, all three of them were out of the business. And uh, we were growing. We were on the uh, Inc. 500 list. So it can be done. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to ask you a, a little bit about the financing of of the business. So you and you and Jeff had worked together for a long time. He was at Carbonite as well. Is that right? Yeah, he was co-founder of Carbonite and four previous companies. All right, so you guys were like brothers, or are like brothers. I mean, you you'd worked together forever, and you had a a great track record. You chose, if I can believe, what's written on Crunchbase. Uh, your first financing was eight and a half million dollars in angel money. Um, given your track record, 
And given how big the cloud storage industry was, how hard was it to raise that capital? Yeah, given that on the face of it, this does seem like an implausible idea. Well, for one thing, uh, none of that money came from venture capitalists. So mm-hmm. you know, I, I went to my uh, well-to-do friends and uh, explained what I wanted to do, and it was not hard to raise the money. Um, <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't need a bunch of doubters in the company. Mm-hmm. And VCs are always looking for some reason not to invest. And, and uh, you know, on the surface, I mean, even some of the VCs who made a lot of money at Carbonite told me I was crazy to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I said, look, you know, I can get money other ways, and I have plenty of my, of my own money to put in if I want to. So um, we did the first round, uh, $8.5 million, I think it was that way. And we just did another uh, 10.5 or $10.7 million from a similar, pretty much the same group of people. And there's a, a number of really deep pockets in that group. Um, you know, people like Desh Dishpandi, who gave $100 million to MIT, and, and uh, Howard Cox, who was one of the founders of Greylock, and many others. Yeah, those are good friends to have, for sure. Um, I, I would say, and, and I guess, let me just follow up on, on, on what you said. They Were they not doubters because they got into the weeds and convinced themselves doing some tech due diligence? Or were they not doubters because they said, look, we know David. He's not messing around. That We're trusting him if he says this is a real opportunity. Well, they did some technical due diligence, but most of these people know us or know of us mm-hmm. for a long time, and, and our reputation is, you know, people who actually can make technology work. Um, so I don't think there were a lot of doubters on that score. But I think what really made it easy to raise the money is these people love uh, these people love the business model. Mm-hmm. They love, the, you know, if I were to come up with or try to come up with something, say, like the next Facebook. Um, there's no way to really know whether there's, you're going to get finished and anybody's going to care, you know, mm-hmm. we'll, and think how many startups get to the point where they have a product and then they find out, you know what? Nobody really is interested. Yeah, We're building the good news about, uh, Wasabi is we're building a product for which there's a very large existing market and we're not building a replacement product for it. We're building the same product, uh, only faster and cheaper. So in my view, it's like a no-brainer. I mean, why, why wouldn't somebody uh, switch or decide to say, gee, I think I'll give these Wasabi guys a try. You know, Normally I would be skeptical about a new company, but these guys have a great track record, and uh, let's give it a shot. So you know, when, when we launched, which was just uh, you know, like eight weeks ago, something mm-hmm. like that, I kind of expected, well, maybe there'd be a couple dozen companies would show up and start a trial, because we didn't really do any advertising. We did some PR around the launch, which you may have seen. Mm-hmm. But we had, by the end of the uh, sixth or seventh week, we were up to like 500 companies that had signed up and were starting to use Wasabi. And the number is just growing faster and faster. So I think we're on to something. And, uh, you know, unless we shoot ourselves in the foot, I, I just can't see any way that we could lose. Unless unless one of the big guys, Amazon, Google, or Microsoft, does something which I would consider to be completely irrational and, you know, cut their price by 80%. 
which, you know, obviously if that happened, goodbye. But I seriously doubt that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, it it does. I mean, geez, there are all kinds of interesting questions about that. Uh, on the other hand, these are very smart companies. And, and you know, look at Amazon. While $5 billion to that business unit manager is is a really big deal, in the scheme of Amazon's business, I don't know how big a deal it is. And if Jeff Bezos looks 10 years down the road, he might say, I mean, isn't the rational thing to get ahead of this thing while you can? Or what is the end game for Amazon? You know, cannibalizing your own business is a very tough decision. No yeah. What. And uh, if you, uh, I'm sort of a student of industrial history. Mm-hmm. And when you, you go back through, uh, you know, through the last hundred years of uh, American business, there are very few cases where you can find companies that will basically take, you know, a major step backwards in order to take two steps forward. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do that, particularly if you're a public company and, you know, you're coming under the scrutiny of uh, the investor world. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I totally agree with you. I'm also I also like to think of myself as a student of of industrial history. And it, it, my experience is there are only con- two conditions under which that happens. One is the company is in true distress. And that would be, for instance, the IBM story. But the other is when the company is still led by the founder. And and so that would characterize, say, Netflix or, well, Netflix is the the example I usually go to on that. So so it's, but it, but it's a great observation, and I love this observation. I mean, this would be like saying people are currently flying from Boston to Los Angeles. They're paying a thousand dollars for that airplane ticket. We're going to sell it for a hundred dollars. Do you think people will buy that product? I mean, that's, it's that kind of proposition. So it's one of those things that if you can in fact deliver it, it does seem that you can't lose in terms of the market demand. Yeah. Just now in fact, one of our customers sent me an email saying what we're doing it's like getting a first class round trip ticket to paris or a hundred bucks right exactly um, yeah and you know there all of these companies like ryanair and then early on JetBlue and and southwest and so forth they're just offering point-to-point air traffic i mean it's plain old get on a plane get in one city and get off the plane yeah. in another city yeah. there's absolutely nothing that would have stopped united or american or any of the big carriers from keeping these guys from getting a foothold, but they couldn't because their business business model wouldn't allow it. Yeah, that to me is the biggest takeaway from this conversation and the one I really want to underscore for our listeners, which is if you can come up with a business model that literally cannot be replicated by your rivals without them destroying their own business, that can be a winning strategy. And that's a nice template for thinking about a truly disruptive uh, startup. Uh, so it's a, it's a really nice nice insight. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to just spend one minute on probably the last topic we can cover on on the name. I love the name Wasabi. It's extremely memorable. Um, you were originally called something like Blue Archive. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, about that name and 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 how you came up with it and and how you acquired the domain. <laughs> well, we when uh, Blue Archive was really a. Uh, uh, kind of a decoy mm-hmm. uh, because we wanted people to think that we were doing sort of cold storage. Ah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is we knew darn well that when we came out, we were going to be extremely hot, you know, like yeah. six hotter. 
and uh, and wasabi is hot. So you know, we went out. We probably looked at 200 URLs. Wow. And and names for the company. And when we found wasabi, we just said that's it. You know, it's just like carbonate. When you know, yeah. we went through 100 names for carbonate too, and when we saw it, we said that's it. This is the name that's going to resonate. And a couple of writers have mentioned it too. One guy said, you know, Dave Friend and Jeff Flowers clearly having too much fun naming their companies. But, um, you know, it was uh, for sale. It was extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it's an investment you have to make if, uh, you know, um, I mean, I'm trained as an engineer, but I've been a marketing guy really most of my career. And, uh, you know, having a name like that that's memorable, that says, you know, hey, it's hot, you know, it's uh, it's just, it's a great name, and, and I'm so glad we were able to finally get it. Yeah, it's a fantastic name, and I think people dramatically underestimate how important it is. For one thing, it just signals you guys are serious, because you see a name like that, and you say, wow, they thought about it, and they spent uh, they spent a lot to get it, and that says they're here for, they're, 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 they're taking this very seriously. Yeah, that's a mid-six-figure uh URL. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, David, we're out of time, but this is so interesting and it's an amazing story that you've only been at. Well, you've been at it for a long time, but the launch has been just six weeks and I can't wait to see what happens because it's going to be so interesting to watch. But thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. All right. To find out more about Wasabi, just go to wasabi.com. One of the best names I've seen on the show. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.